0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the promises and pitfalls of artificial intelligence in healthcare. How do we make sure we get the benefits without risking harm?
1: How one of the most basic and easily treatable causes of heart attacks, strokes, kidney damage and dementia is still not being detected and treated well.
0: But first, some pretty big health news, Norman, out of the US about a type of cancer immunotherapy called CAR-T cell therapy. It's often offered to patients when other treatments aren't working But the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has said last week that they are looking into reports that CAR-T therapy could actually cause cancer.
1: Yeah, this is a revolutionary and quite expensive therapy that's individualised for people with blood cancers. White blood cells are taken from the person with the cancer and genetically modified, so it's a bit like a sniffer dog. When they're put back into the person, they can seek out and destroy the malignant cells. The problem the Food and Drug Administration is concerned about is whether lymphoma itself can actually be a side effect of CAR-T cell therapy. To put it in context, I spoke to Associate Professor Michael Dickinson, who's the lead of aggressive lymphoma at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Deputy Director of the CAR-T
2: Centre for Excellence. We have CAR-T cells in Australia that are approved for treatment for lymphoma and we have cells that are available around the world for the treatment of myeloma.
1: So what's the concern of the Food and Drug Administration where they say they're looking into lymphoma as a side effect, if you like, of CAR-T?
2: Well, there have been a few cases of T-cell lymphoma that have arisen in patients who have received CAR T-cell therapy. Now, thousands and thousands and thousands of patients have received CAR T-cell therapy around the world.
1: Lymphoma is a cancer of different kinds of T-cells. And we've got B-cells, and we've got T-cells, and even within that, it's, it's different. So there's a lot of varieties of lymphoma. So what they're saying is you might have been treating, say, a B-cell lymphoma with CAR T, and then the person ends up with a T-cell lymphoma. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, that's what I'm saying. Essentially, there have been a few cases of lymphoma that may be related to the product itself. The product is made by modifying the genes within the product. And the reason for the interest in these very small number of cases is that you are there trying to treat a B-cell lymphoma or a myeloma with these modified T-cells. And then a patient has developed a new lymphoma that appears to be a T-cell lymphoma. And so the question is whether these T-cell lymphomas are in some way related to this CAR T-cell product and the way it's manufactured. So have the CAR T-cells gone rogue? Have the CAR T-cells gone rogue through some element of their genetic modification?
1: Have you been looking into this at the Peter account?
2: We have had one individual case in our hospital who has received a product which is actually commercially approved overseas for the treatment of myeloma. We have treated hundreds of patients with CAR T-cells and we are aware of thousands and thousands of patients who've received CAR T-cells globally and we are only aware of a couple of cases where it may be connected and the FDA haven't yet presented the details of the cases that they're exploring. We've been using these treatments now for years and years and years and we've not seen this before. So if it is an event that's related to this CAR T-cell treatment, it's very rare. I think the other way to kind of frame this is that with all blood cancers and indeed with all cancer therapy that we use, it's not unheard of to hear of a patient developing a subsequent cancer that might be related to their prior therapies. Now, most of the CAR T-cell therapies that are approved for use, and certainly the ones that are approved in Australia, are used for patients who've already had many prior lines of treatment for their cancer. And many of those prior lines of treatment would usually include cytotoxic chemotherapy or radiation, which we know is DNA damaging. So separating these second malignancies from what we already understand to be a base background rate of second malignancies from prior therapies is, I guess, the scientific question that that the FDA is trying to address.
1: The point you're making is that
2: cancer therapy itself is carcinogenic cancer therapy itself is carcinogenic, regrettably. What um, are the results they're getting from CAR T? It's been transformational. For the indications where CAR T cells are approved, these are indications where patients previously had no treatment options. And I can give examples for acute leukaemia in children and young adults, aggressive lymphomas, which is my particular area of interest, and also myeloma. And if I turn to aggressive lymphomas, which is my area of interest, where CAR T cells are approved, they're approved for patients who've had at least two prior lines of therapy. And prior to CAR T-cells, we had no curative treatment option for those patients. These were aggressive lymphomas that would shorten patients' lives to a matter of months after they'd relapsed. And CAR T-cells transform that and probably cure about 45% of patients who receive that treatment. There's now randomised clinical trial data that compare CAR T-cells to stem cell transplants and show an overall survival advantage of using CAR T-cells in the context of first relapse of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So there's really high-quality evidence that this treatment is benefiting patients in lymphoma, and that takes into account all causes of death, including second malignancies. You know, right now, and indeed the FDA's statement says this, that at the moment there's no question that the potential benefit outweighs the potential risk. It's just understanding the biology of these individual cases, which I think is probably a challenge for the field.
1: Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Associate Professor Michael Dickinson is the lead of Aggressive Lymphoma at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and Deputy Director of the Carty Centre of Excellence. And a big shout-out to Esther, and we'll give you the reason for that, we hope, in a future health report.
0: It's a story that's been almost inescapable this year, the galloping pace of artificial intelligence. Are we standing on the brink of an age when our biggest problems will be solved or where technology could get away from us in ways that could make our lives much worse? And most relevant to our purposes, what is the role of AI in healthcare? It has the potential to ease the burden on overworked clinicians and develop personalised medicine, but the data sets it works with involve some of our most sensitive information – One thing Australian experts agree on is that this only works if we're on the same page. A national plan for the safe and ethical use of AI in healthcare was launched. Late last month, Enrico Coyara led the work and I spoke to him earlier. It's a pleasure. So AI, we keep talking about it like it's far off in the future, but actually it is already being used in healthcare. How?
3: AI has been around really for 25 or 30 years and the last five years, have seen it explode everywhere. You talk about healthcare, we use it every day as consumers. It modifies our social media feeds. In healthcare, people use it for things like checking their symptoms, should I go to the doctor or not. In hospitals and in medical practices, it's used for things like your colonoscopy has an AI in it. So it's everywhere, really.
0: What is the promise of AI in healthcare if we can get it right?
3: Look, I think healthcare is a good news story for AI. If you think about the healthcare as a system, it's under a lot of pressure. There are some figures that are always very sobering. So only about 60% of care that we deliver globally, not just in Australia, is in line with what's called best practice. 30% of it is often waste, unnecessary, and about 10% can cause some kind of harm. So those are challenges that all healthcare systems around the world face. And if we can somehow make healthcare more effective, more evidence-based, more efficient, then that's going to help everybody. It's going to reduce costs and improve the quality of service. And that's the promise of AI. Not that it's going to take over humans, but that we're going to be able to work more cleverly with the technology. You know, If you think about sitting down with your GP, most people today are used to the GP tapping away at the computer as they speak to you. These new generation technologies like generative AI offer the promise of what they call ambient listening. It can listen in And it could type the notes as you go, leaving the doc free to talk to you uh, as a human. So rather than getting in the way, some of this AI is actually going to make healthcare
0: potentially more human. Especially when we're talking about our data, our health data, it's super sensitive. What are the potential pitfalls?
3: The biggest problem I think uh, we face is that somebody will get our data and do things with it that we don't consent with. One of my concerns is what I would call unregulated use of AI. So we have an Australia a system where all new technologies get assessed before they're allowed out to be used. And technically, if you're building an AI, that needs to be assessed by an organization called the TGA. But a lot of people are using things like ChatGPT, for example, to write letters and notes, but it hasn't been tested on it and we don't know it's safe.
0: It's sort of strange to think of the TGA as being part of the regulatory framework here. It shouldn't be, but I sort of think about them in in relation to medicines and sort of medical devices. That's right. Is that enough in terms of regulation? You've developed this roadmap. What is missing from our checks and balances that is specific to AI that we can't already do with the checks and balances that we've got?
3: That's a really good question. And uh, the way I think about it is to ask, what is AI doing that's different to the technologies we currently have? And One of the big differences is that it's learning. In other words, it's changing its behavior over time as it sees more patients and gets new data. And regulation is kind of see once, certify once, off you go, and you only come back for rechecking once you've got a major change. So we need a way of being able to look at technologies once they're out in the world to make sure that things are not going wrong. It's maybe not a great analogy, but I think we're going to be in a world where the technology has to be sent out with P-plates that you need to be checking how it's going and maybe it's not really allowed to have full access to the roads until it's really been out for a while and showing that it's really as safe and effective. And we do that only because it's harder to assess these technologies than it is, say, a simple medical device like a blood pressure machine or something.
0: So in the policy recommendations that you've made as part of this new roadmap, I'm reading about things like safety, ethics and security, the sort of regulatory side of things that we've talked about before. Industry sort of supporting it and and being part of it. And I think where there's money, there's a desire to be part of that sort of thing. What are the other elements that you see as being really important?
3: One that's really critical is ourselves as consumers. A little bit of education by ourselves in terms of what is good and bad information, what recommendations to trust is taking us a long way. The same kind of education needs to happen for the workforce, the medical and nursing and healthcare professional workforce. And you mentioned industry. You know, the truth is that everything that we will see in healthcare that has AI in it has come from a company and Australia has a really high quality but very small healthcare AI industry. So one of the things we're focused on is how do we build up local capacity? People who have studied this say the cost of a new product about 50 to 60% of that can be the cost of regulation, in other words, providing the evidence that your device or your software is safe. So maybe some tax incentives or tax breaks there.
0: This stuff doesn't come free. Like with ChatGPT, which everyone sort of talks about sometimes how flawed it is, that was a billion-dollar investment that got it to where it is now. What kind of investment would we need to be able to have high-quality AI that, that does the job here in Australia?
3: That's a really hard question if you think about it in terms of building these giant, large language models that generative AI like OpenAI has done and ChatGPT. There are probably only now three or four companies in the world who can afford to do this, you know, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, Google. So maybe for the planet, one of our big challenges is that, you know, who owns these massive technologies is now in the hands of a few, very small, large corporates. Healthcare is a little bit easier in the sense that we can pick specific problems like diagnosing a chest x-ray, get the data and build those algorithms locally. And I think, as you said, there's a will to do it, but we just need to cut these folks a break in the sense of giving them a chance to compete with the big globals. And that's where tax breaks will help. That's where getting access to high quality data to train your algorithms on um, will make a big difference. In terms of research and development, we've looked at how much Australia has invested over the last five years in healthcare. And it's about 0.9% of the healthcare budget that we could count has gone into AI in healthcare. And there were 84 studies or what we call clinical trials of AI around the world over the last five years. None were done in Australia. So at the moment, we're behind. And what we're pushing for is for an increase in budget. I'm not going to give a number because it's too hard to do, but we're definitely at the very low end of where we should be.
0: Enrico, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Professor Enrico Coyera is Director at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University and founder of the Australian Alliance for AI in Healthcare. And for
1: transparency, I should declare that I facilitated the process that led to that document. You're with The Health Report. (music) When you or someone you know is living with a mental health issue that's complex or isn't resolving, you'd like to think you could be referred to a psychiatrist if that's what you need. Well, last week on The Health Report, GPs from both sides of the continent were complaining that it's very difficult, or becoming very difficult, to find psychiatrists for general practice patients, and that's with potentially major consequences. This week, as promised, a response from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, whose New South Wales chair is Dr Angelo Vergona. Thanks, Norman. So what's your response then?
4: It's probably best seen as a perfect storm of things, I think, Norman. I think we've had an enormous increase in demand and seen most acutely in our emergency departments, but also in referrals to psychiatry and psychology.
1: Demand in what? I mean, is it depression, anxiety, psychosis? What's the demand increasing?
4: It is everything. I don't think there's been a particular increase in psychosis, but there's been demand in anxiety, depression, eating disorders, trauma-related disorders. There's an increased awareness in the community about mental health, particularly as a result of COVID, because everybody was talking about mental health all the time. And people suffered a lot during that period and have probably brought to the surface many issues that have been people have been labouring with for a long time, but thought that they should now seek help. We've also seen an increase in demand for things like ADHD, which has gotten quite a push along in TikTok and other sort of social media forums. And so there's been a lot of pressure coming to private psychiatry and psychology in particular for assessments for those conditions. In addition to that, we've also seen chronic underfunding in our public mental health sector, so that our community mental health services for some time have had very limited capacity to provide assessment services. I mean, I remember times when we would accept referrals in community mental health centres from GPs and do assessments on patients and provide feedback and short-term care. But that sort of thing doesn't seem to happen anymore because their focus has become extremely limited. I'm looking after the most severely chronically mentally ill people and doing very short-term follow-up of people in crisis.
1: I'll come back to some of that in a moment, but if you look at the number of psychiatrists per 100,000 of the population in Australia, we're, we're right bang in the middle of the OECD average. But they're in more affluent suburbs, they're in metropolitan areas, and the further you go out from our cities, that number just drops dramatically. But here are GPs in the metropolitan areas saying they can't get access to psychiatrists. Are psychiatrists doing the wrong work? Because this has been a problem forever, that psychiatrists go into private practice, they go into the wealthier suburbs, and they see people, arguably, with milder mental health issues. So their lists get clogged with people with milder mental health issues, which could be looked after by GPs, and they're not seeing the severe end of the issue. And now you've got ADHD, where reputedly psychiatrists are charging a lot of money for sitting at home doing telehealth consultations. Are psychiatrists doing the wrong kind of work?
4: Well, I think the the word you used was arguably, and I think part of the problem here is that we've got really, really poor data on what it is that psychiatrists are doing in private practice. Now, I know anecdotally from people I work with out here in Campbelltown and in the Illawarra that we're seeing people with the most severe and complex psychiatric disorders in private practice, there aren't any easy-to-treat disorders that we're seeing. And I think before we cast aspersions on psychiatrists and, and saying that, well, they're limiting their practices to these sorts of milder disorders, I think we've got to get some real data. Now, I agree we've had the maldistribution of psychiatric and psychological resources for a long, long time, but telehealth has helped in that regard somewhat. I mean, people in the bush have been able to access psychiatry in a way that they weren't able to previously. But I think the maldistribution is a, a serious and ongoing problem.
1: So what are the solutions here? I mean, one proposal has been, do you really need five years to train a psychiatrist? Why don't you move it to three years?
4: That's a big debate. Before we sort of go down that path, I think we've got to actually look at funding a suitable number of places in the first place. I think you need
1: training present- places?
4: Training places. We've got the the state governments are essentially responsible for training psychiatrists in their public hospitals and community health centres. The federal government has participated by providing some funding to place people in private hospital settings and in rural locations, but it's very limited. It's a spit in the bucket, really, for what's really required. I also am advocating that we get trainees working much more in the private practice sector, if you're training to be a GP, you're training in the general practice. If you're training to be a private psychiatrist, which most psychiatrists will end up doing, why are they only get training in the public hospital sector? And we could push more people through the training process. Cutting it down to three years or four years, that's quite a dramatic thing to do. I know that they're doing this with child psychiatry in Washington State in the US, but we have to sort of wait and see what the outcomes are going to be. So that's it? I think GPs are under the pump. The psychiatrists are under the pump. The whole system is in a state of crisis, and it's been broken for such a long period of time. And I don't think there are any easy fixes, and there's not one thing that's going to make a huge difference. We've got to get the data right. We've also got to increase the training places for psychiatry and psychology We also need a more robust public sector. We need the state governments, like they have done in Victoria and Queensland more recently, to really invest in their mental health services so that there's greater capacity in the mental health community teams particularly to be able to look after people with chronic and severe mental disorders, not only psychotic illness. We also need sort of better arrangements so that psychiatrists and GPs can collaborate with each other much more effectively. The thing you were referring to earlier is the item 291 which is a single psychiatric assessment with a detailed management plan that goes back to the GP. Now that's fine but we need much more than that and I think the GPs are requesting much more ongoing contact with psychiatry.
1: In Ontario they have psychiatrists practicing out in general practice beside the general practitioners. Could you foresee a situation like that occurring here? Would psychiatrists be willing to leave their rooms and go and practice alongside GPs?
4: That has happened already. I mean, the federal government, through the primary health networks, has put funding into these PHNs to try to sort of cover some of the gaps. And so they're targeted people with specific diagnoses or coming from cultural backgrounds, disadvantaged groups. And part of that was to increase people's access to psychiatry. And some of the PHNs actually placed psychiatrists in general practice settings. Anecdotally, that seems to have worked well at times, but it's very much a patchwork thing, and we haven't seen very good data to suggest that this is something that would be effective on a broader scale.
1: Angelo, thanks for joining us.
4: Good on you, Norman. Thank you.
1: Dr Angelo Vergona is Chair of the New South Wales branch of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Next to smoking, one of the most toxic risk factors for your heart, kidneys and brain is raised blood pressure, also known as hypertension, which can cause heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure and contribute to dementia. But according to experts in the field, far too many people don't know what their blood pressure is, aren't aware of the risks, and even if they are diagnosed, aren't sticking to the treatment. Professor Marcus Schleich of the University of Western Australia and is President of Hypertension Australia and co-lead of the National Hypertension Task Force, and he's with us now. Welcome to the Health Report, Marcus.
5: Thank you very much, Norman. Great to be here.
1: So what are the actual statistics on not detecting high blood pressure and under treatment? It used to be said that it was the rule of halves that... Half of people with high blood pressure didn't know they had it. Half of people who knew they had it weren't properly controlled.
5: Absolutely. Look, and these kind of old statistics and general rules, unfortunately, still apply. And uh, very recently, there was a global review of the so-called control rates, summarizing the number or rather the percentage of those people who have uh, elevated blood pressure or hypertension being actually at control levels. And that was only around 32% in Australia, and that compares very poorly to other high-income countries, um, uh, in particular Canada, US, Great Britain, and others. So we really have to tackle this problem, and the stats are still very, very poor, and we have become a bit complacent in the context of high blood pressure, and we have to turn that around.
1: What's the level at which your blood pressure is called high? So the
5: standard definition which applies in Australia as well is if you take blood pressure in the office or in a doctor's practice, where, it's, where it is most commonly done, a blood pressure above 140 or above 90 millimetres mercury for the systolic or the diastolic blood so pressure. So you just talked about the top
1: figure and, and the bottom figure, 140 correct, over 90. correct. Now, one of the things that we've covered recently on the health report is accurate measurement where people have moved over to those automatic machines, but they're using the wrong size cuff and either over-detecting or under-detecting high blood pressure. You'd think that's the most basic thing on earth, actually doing the blood pressure measurement.
5: It sounds like it, but as uh, with many things, the devil is in the detail and there's so many things that can go wrong. You mentioned an important one. If you use uh, a, a, a cuff that is not appropriately sized, if it's too small, you will overestimate the real blood pressure. It's too big. You underestimate the real blood pressure. You shouldn't talk to people while you take the blood pressure because that can you uh, can create substantial differences in blood pressure. People should be seated in a comfortable comfortable way, have their back supported, have the feet on the ground, not crossed. All of these little things can make a substantial difference and it's all about standardising blood pressure readings such that we can trust those numbers and then actually act upon them as well.
1: And can you trust what you measure at home because some people say it's actually more accurate measured at home.
5: Absolutely. Again, given uh, that uh, the uh, people who measure the blood pressure at home, which we very much promote, have been educated in doing it appropriately. So the same principles apply. You should usually wait for around five minutes. You should sit in a comfortable chair, not necessarily on the couch, with the feet on the ground, have the cuff around and then press the button and take uh, usually two readings in the morning, two at nighttime and record those and share them with your health practitioner. And then we can basically any treatment decisions on those valid numbers
1: to what extent can lifestyle bring down your blood pressure
5: look lifestyle is absolutely critical not only in the context of high blood pressure but you know for achieving a normal weight. let's let's just walk
1: through them there's salt reduction does salt reduction work
5: Absolutely, particularly in the context of high blood pressure in Australia. We are in um, an environment that is still very rich in salt, and reducing salt intake uh, no doubt has an impact on blood pressure. And that is a, a simple means by which we can probably reduce the blood pressure across the population.
1: And a few years ago, work at the Baker Institute suggested that moderate exercise most days of the week will also reduce your blood pressure, as will weight Absolutely. loss.
5: Lifestyle in general, including you know salt reduction, um, uh, physical activity, which often then relates to improved physical health as well and weight loss, are all factors that can reduce blood pressure and have benefit for other common comorbid conditions such as you know glucose diabetes um, and high cholesterol. And then there's this well.
1: extraordinary statistic that people about a year after they start on blood pressure medications, a very high percentage aren't taking them anymore. Is that because they think they're cured?
5: You know, most of uh, people that are suffering from a bit blood pressure now know that, you know, we have to manage the condition. Most of the times we cannot necessarily cure it, except if you are very obese and you use a lot of uh, weight, for example. But it's usually, unfortunately, lifelong management. And people need to understand that uh, uh, in contrast to, let's say, an infection which you treat with an antibiotic for uh, seven to 10 days, let's say, and it's gone. That's different with those chronic conditions, including high blood pressure, where you Need to stay on your medication in order to continue to control blood pressure, but that will pay out in terms of a significant reduction in the risk for strokes, heart attacks, etc.
1: So that's what we are got to get on top of:
5: Absolutely. measurement, that's-
1: lifestyle. And actually taking a treatment
5: that that's the critical point you know including lifestyle as the basis but if that is not sufficient which you know is often the case uh, we need to know that the blood pressure is truly elevated and then we have to treat them with uh, excellent medications we have available the vast majority very well tolerated and effective but they have to be taken otherwise they can't work obviously
1: and you've got a national project running on this just this
5: we do indeed. We have launched uh, pretty much exactly a year ago a, a national hypertension task force based on those numbers, those poor rates of control and a lot of other problems we face. We decided to bring all the stakeholders in the area together that includes primary care, nurses, pharmacists, uh, learned societies to really tackle this problem on a national level to make people aware, to educate our GPs even better in terms of managing blood pressure and really make a difference with the aim to re- increase the control rates by 2030 to around
1: 70%. Marcus, thanks for joining us.
5: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Norman. Bates. Professor
1: Mariusz Schleich of the University of Western Australia and President of Hypertension Australia. And that's the health report for this week.
0: And we'll see you next week. We will indeed.